And so, last week we looked at the first part of Psalm 22 that starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you've never read Psalm 22, you've heard those words cried out before. They were cried out by the Lord from the cross, and we'll review that in a minute. But as we looked at Psalm 22, we saw that it was a prophetic messianic psalm of the cross, specifically of the cross, which is kind of amazing. God always tells us of the things he does beforehand, so when they come to pass, we know it was of the Lord. Well, how much more so the cross of Christ, which in which the sin of all of mankind was paid for. Now, we're looking at it as we look at Psalm 22, and we see details of what has occurred, which is really amazing because, well, at the writing of the psalm is 600 years before the crucifixion had even come into means as a means of execution. At David's writing, King David's writing, they didn't even know what a cross was as far as to unite it with a, a means of execution. And it's also written 1,400 years before what occurred on Mount Calvary, before Christ was hung upon that cross. So God's really trying to tell us something. He's really wanting to get our attention. And the idea is, is God, well, he's got purpose that we would look at Psalm 22 so that we would understand, first of all, who was crucified upon the cross that we would understand that this was the prophesied Messiah. We have come to know Messiah as the Lord Jesus, and we would know that this is God, and this was God's purpose for man's sinful condition, that we would understand what was happening as Christ was being crucified. Psalm 22 gives us this great insight that even the New Testament doesn't give us into what was happening between the Son and the Father and that it was all according to God's plan for man's salvation. This was not mankind executing God. This was God receiving the punishment for our sins because although that punishment was due to us, we could never pay that price. And God is a God of justice, and we'll look at this in detail on Sunday morning, but it was justice was served through the Lord. And so again, God tells us of these things that happened before they happened so that we would know that it is him. We as the church today look back and we see the things prophesied and see how they have come about so that we would know and we would understand the things that are prophesied that have yet to happen are going to come to pass as well. Last Sunday, Actually, it was the Sunday before we saw Second Peter chapter 3 and we saw some of the end time prophecies that are still before us, those things that we look forward to the coming of. And so God speaks to us through his word, whether Old Testament or New Testament, and he would definitely, if that's the case, highlight the cross because that was the turning point of all of our lives. It's as Jesus Christ entered into our lives that we came into a right relationship with God through faith, and it's all built upon the cross and the proof of what occurred upon the cross, the resurrection of the Lord. And matter of fact, Jesus proved this concept many times, but to a greater degree, obviously, when he had opportunities to share from the word, his word, well, he is the word, but nonetheless, he used the Old Testament as the scriptures from which he shared from. After the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord, he was on the road to Emmaus, where there were these two men on the road to Emmaus, and the Lord met them on the road. And I just want to look at what the Lord used and and the surety of the Old Testament and the reality of what was being prophesied again and how it came to pass and, and, and just the 
well, just the Lord's approach. In Luke 24, verse 13, it says, Now behold, two of them, two men, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So again, there was a triumphal entry. There was the crucifixion of the cross and and just all of these things. This man, Messiah, they thought he would deliver Israel from Rome. That didn't happen. So they were just discussing all of these things that they had observed during this Passover season. It says in verse 15, So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So they're traveling with this man who they do not know who he is. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Clophus answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, These things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And as certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So what they had was a lot of fragments of what had occurred, and they have very little understanding of what occurred. And so they have these truths of what had happened, and now they need understanding. So there's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's there. Part of the purpose is is to give them understanding as what had happened, because Jesus did deliver his people. They just don't understand the magnitude or the reality of it. Verse 25, Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He's saying these things that have happened are the things that the word of God, the Old Testament, had said were going to happen all along. Verse 27, and beginning at Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and all of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, he expounded to them in all the scriptures these things concerning himself. And so he's going through the Bible, and he's for seven miles. He's bringing up these things, and I, 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 we don't know this is a fact, but I would imagine one of the things that he brought up was Psalm 22. And really what we see here, what's being spoken of here, is the very first Bible study of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ after the fact. And so the Lord is giving them a Bible study on his uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection. Many other places, Isaiah 53 is a really great uh, section of scripture that describes what happened on the cross as well. Many times in the Old Testament speak of the prophecies of Jesus and his death. Last week we saw how Jesus validated Psalm 22 as messianic when he quoted it and exemplified it from the cross. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, as he was hanging upon the cross, as I said earlier, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly what we see in verse 1. And again, the idea behind that is to bring those who were there to the psalm, Psalm 22, so they would understand what was going on. 
In John 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And we see in Psalm 22, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shred and my tongue clings to my jaws. In John 19, verse 30, he says it is finished. In verse 31 of Psalm 22, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this, or he has done this can be equally translated, it is finished. And then in Luke 23, verse 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 15, the last part, you have brought me to the dust of death. Now, these last sayings on the cross, there were seven total, but these last four sayings that we just reviewed were between father and son. And we saw that it was during this time of a strange phenomena that was going on. Luke 23, 44 tells us that starting at noon till 3 o'clock, there was complete and utter darkness that came upon the land. Why darkness? Well, it's at this point that Jesus is taking the sins of the world upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he feeling that? Why is he experiencing that? It's because for the very first time, Jesus, being fully man, but still fully God, is experiencing the effects of sin upon him and the separation in his humanity of how it feels to be separated from God. And again, this is that which caused the Lord even to come just almost to the threshold of despair as he was in the garden, as he understood what was going to happen. It wasn't about the scourging or the nailing or the whipping and all of those things. It was about the taking on of the sins of the world, God for the very first time. And so we have this time of absolute darkness, no sun, no stars, no moon. It's about as if we are being shut out of this time we looked at last week because this is personal time between the Son and the Father and we approached it from that point. And so once again in verses 1 and 2 we see, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord crying out from the point of despair. And there's kind of this progression that goes through or or maybe it's just cyclical, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the effects of sin, but then there's also the reality of God. In verse 3 it says, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But then in verse 6, there's again the effects of sin, but I. But then in verse 9, there's the knowledge once again of God, but you. And then down in verse 19, there's but you. And so there's this back and forth that we should all be able to relate to as we're going through this hard time. Our situation gets the better of us, but then there's the memory of God. But then we have those ups and down times as we're struggling, as we're going through these hard things. And we see that Jesus, Jesus, as he's in this dark time, burying our sin. In actuality, what is he burying? He's really burying our hell. Because what is being described and what we see in the Gospels, we see that this is a perfect description of hell, of outer darkness. Why is hell described as fire and brimstone and outer darkness? Well, brimstone is an alkali, so there's no real flames there, but it's kind of like, it's the opposite of acid, so there's just this this corrosion that is going on. But there's also outer darkness. Now, outer darkness would tell us that God's not there. It's the absence of God, because when God is there, the glory of God would fill the place, 
but these who have rejected God, God has rejected them. And so because Jesus has taken away or taken upon him the sins of the world, he's feeling that separation from God. He's bearing our hell upon him, if you will. This is the point that the unbeliever falls into despair, but this is the point that Jesus is going to emerge victorious. But it's at the acknowledgement of sin that mankind has the opportunity, just as the Lord, to look to God and to be comforted. And so again, we're seeing a pattern here that's going to continue through into the verses, our text for tonight. Pattern of what had happened during despair as God was meeting him, as sin was being dealt with. But for those whom sin is dealt with, we see how God is going to use us as well as we advance on in our in our study. And so Jesus' example upon the cross, well, he's there for these people. We go out into the world for the purpose of making disciples, and what happens? Well, some get saved, but the majority, they do exactly what they did to Christ. Verse 7, and those who see me, they ridicule me or they mock me. They shoot out the lip and they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's the frustrating part of being a witness. It's the frustrating part of seeing or having that desire to see loved ones come into the kingdom of God when they reject. And I would imagine had to be frustrating to Jesus Christ. Well, we know it was because remember in the triumphal entry when he saw the people, what did it do? It brought him to tears because he understood the rejection of Messiah. If he only knew this day, the day of your visitation, and it's almost as if there's a frustration there because it's in the word almost to the date. You could have seen it. You should have known. But still, they rejected him, and we can understand that heartache as those who reject our witness of Jesus Christ as well. Verses 9 through 11, But you are he who took me out of the womb, understanding the power and the magnitude of God, who made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. The point is, God has been faithful to those in the Bible, and just as he has been faithful to them, just as he's been faithful to Christ upon the cross, he'll be faithful to us as well. Verses 12 through to 21. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried like a pot shred and my tongue clings to my jaws and it brought me to the dust of death. And so he's just kind of building on this despair. For dogs have surrounded me and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And again, this describes nothing else but crucifixion that, again, has not come into being for another 600 years. They pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all of my bones. We know that none of his bones were broken. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the details of what occurred during that time. Verse 19, again, this is the major turning point here now. But you, O Lord, now again, Lord, is all in caps. It's the tetragrammatron Yahweh. This is the God who is. But you, O God, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the great turning point here is, you have answered me. 
And the idea is, is that God has heard him. He's heard his cry. He sees and knows his situation. Again, we put ourselves into that place, but here we have to look at Christ first. We have to understand the magnitude of him with the sin upon himself, crying out to the Father. And he's crying out to the Father. God hears him just as surely as he hears us. Remember, this is the point of the crucifixion where there was this veil of utter darkness. And again, it's personal time between a father and son. You can look and, and draw the parallels because this was even, although this is prophecy of what is to come, it was prophesied as well. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, there is this picture, first, first mention of love in the Bible and the scriptures there. God tells Abraham to get his son. And so he hears those words and he would think, okay, well, which one, Ishmael or, or Isaac? Get your son, your only son, the one whom you love. And so the very first mention of love in the Bible is the love that a father has for his son. And what is God going to tell him to do? We know the story, to take him and to present him as an offering or a sacrifice to God. And it says that Abraham got up early in the morning and went and did what God told him to do. And so the idea is, is the love that a father has for a son that it is to be sacrificed. And so this is the main theme within all of the scriptures is the great love that the father has. And as he comes before mankind, he offers his son. And so we look forward into the New Testament and the first mention of love in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is this is my son and whom my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you look into John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so you see this constant theme is the father, the great love that he has for his son who is about to be sacrificed. And that's what we have here. We have this fellowship between father and son. Jesus is not dead yet as far as where we're at in Psalm 22. That will not occur until verse 31, but it's in the midst of there as he's in outer darkness, as he has the sin upon him, that he knows that he has the attention of the father. You have answered me. This is a point that light shines into darkness. I'm not saying that darkness, the darkness that was upon the earth, went away at this point, but you'll see just the complete change of attitude, of mindset, and hope as it enters into the equation as Jesus is on that cross and the reality that the Father hears him. Because what is he doing? He's fulfilling the plan of the Father. Keep in mind, again, Jesus, fully God, but fully man. The pain he has experienced is real. The separation from God is real. The effects of sin. I mean, the guilt that we have and all of just the whole ball of wax is upon him and he's experiencing these things now. And again, it's for the very first time, but he's understanding in the midst of all of that. So we would understand in the midst of all that we deal with, the father still hears us. There's a a story of a um, farmer and a carpenter. The farmer had shared with the carpenter many times the gospel, and the carpenter said, well, it can't just be finished upon the cross. There's got to be something I got to do for salvation. I understand the concept of grace, but there's got to be something to be done on my part. And the farmer kept telling him, no, there's nothing to be done on your part. 
once you're saved, it, it's a work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the carpenter could just never get past that. Well, one day he had the carpenter out to his farm. He had a fence and he wanted to put a gate and he needed a gate built. So the carpenter came out, took the measurements, brought it back and built the gate and gave it to the, the, the farmer, came and got it and installed it and asked the carpenter to come. Um, yeah, the carpenter to come and, and check out the gate. And he did. And he says, yeah, perfect. Works fine. Did a good job. Everything. Yeah, it's great. It, it's finished. It's completely finished. And then the, the farmer said, well, just one more thing. He goes, well, what? He goes, hold on. He went and he got an axe. And he goes, well, what are you going to do with that? He goes, well, there's still a few things that need to be done here. And he started hacking the gate up. And the carpenter's beside him. So how can you possibly do that? What are you doing? He goes, well, it's the same thing you do to Christ upon the cross. By trying to add your works to what is already done and already perfect and fully functioning, you do damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was through that that the story goes. I don't know if this is real. It's just something I've read quite a while ago, but it's a great illustration that the man came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And coming to realize that it's the magnitude of what Christ has done on the cross. Well, this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. And so this light that shines into darkness, it's during that dark time that the knowledge of God and what God wants to do to the one who is, uh, for the one who is suffering comes to light. In Psalm 30, verses 11 through 12, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. So we understand that just as Christ is on the cross, we should have been there, and we see the great work that is done. Now, what is to be the result of this? God has answered him. And so now what we're going to see in verse 22 through to the end of the chapter is really Messiah's victory song. It's a victory song when we come to the realization and the understanding that even though there has been a separation, the magnitude of the fulfillment of the plan for man's redemption is just about there. And so really what he's visiting is what is going to be the result of the cross. And so our example is that even in the excuse me, the direst of circumstances, there will be a song of joy for the one who cries out to God. And look at the overwhelming theme of this psalm of victory. It is one of grace. It is one of peace. It is one of relationship. It is one of comfort and is one of salvation. Jesus is achieving victory over sin and man has peace with God through the sacrifice of our Lord. It was all those years, I don't know how old you were when you got saved, but I was well into adulthood when I got saved. And there was all those years that I was enmity with God. God's anger was towards me because I was a sinner and, and I rejected the gospel. But there was that day of salvation that the doors of heaven opened wide before me. God's anger was appeased through Jesus Christ. And because I came in to that relationship through belief that our relationship, our relationship was revealed to me and the totality of it was there for me to grasp onto. We'll see that this is Jesus calling all of mankind now to the Father, understanding what is occurring upon the cross and giving the invitation for all to come and partake of. In John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, 
And we see that upon the cross. There is no other way. I, I saw something on the um, cathedral in Notre Dame. They're talking about rebuilding it. And as they're talking about rebuilding it, they're talking about it being a place of prayer for all faiths. And that just doesn't work. That just doesn't work because Jesus said, I am the way. That means that nobody else is the way. I am the truth. That means that all other faiths that are contrary to Christianity are not of the truth. And I am the life. That tells me that all others, they lead to death. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And we see how the pathway was forged through Christ upon the cross. So in this song that we'll be looking at that Jesus sings out to those who put their trust in him, we'll see it in three progressions. First one is in verses 22 through 24. I will declare your name to my brethren. The idea is countrymen here. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor he is... Has he hidden his face from him? But when he cried to him, he heard. This is the first part of Jesus, and he's calling out to his brethren. Verse 23 describes who these brethren are. Again, you who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. This is the Jews. Remember, Israel was God's first chosen people in the means to which he introduced himself to mankind. It's through that race that Messiah had come. And so things of God, the things of God were first experienced by the Jews. The oracles of God, they were given the written word through Moses and many other prophets, and even the gospel came through Israel. We owe Israel just such a great debt, but we see that this was God's choosing to work through this seemingly insignificant nation, but to reach all of mankind. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, because again, these things were revealed to Israel first, but also for the Greek, or also for the Gentiles. Acts tells us that the gospel went out concentrically from Jerusalem. It started there, and it started with Israel first. When the church pulled within itself, God caused them to go out because of persecution, because God had a plan, not just for Israel. Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, speaking to these men, his apostles, who were Jews. And he says, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and then through to the end of the earth. And although the Jews despised him, he has never despised them. He has a glorious future for Israel. We're told in Romans chapter 11 that there's this stump. And the stump is the Old Testament and the occurrences and the prophecies and all of that. Israel has been removed from that and the Gentiles have been grafted on. This is the church age. But there's going to come a time, we know it's to be during that tribulation, when Israel is going to be grafted back in. Now, it's not that God doesn't minister to the Jew today. But no Jew is saved just simply because he's a Jew. The only way that a Jew is saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are still Jews that are being saved today, but God's main focus is to the Gentile. 
But there's going to come a time, there's going to be the rapture of the church, and there's going to be that time of tribulation. And God's attention is going to, it's going to focus back at Israel. And we see in the book of Revelation, those two witnesses are there, and we're going to see that there's going to be much fruit from their ministry. There's going to be Gentiles that are still saved during the time of tribulation, but God's main focus is back towards Israel. And God's heart has never left Israel, nor will it ever leave Israel. When I say that, I mean the people of Israel. The second progression of this song is to the Gentiles, verses 25 through 29. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All you who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Is anybody here of Jewish heritage? Anybody? That means we're all Gentiles. That means that this is all aimed towards us. And the idea is is that Christ is upon the cross, and upon his heart were the Jews who were going to believe in him for salvation. But also, there were the Gentiles who were going to believe on him for salvation as well. And these are those who comprise the the ends of the earth. The great assembly in verse 25 is defined in verses 27 and 28. Again, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. The nations would be that separated from Israel, although at times it is inclusive of Israel as well. These are those that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, his disciples that were before him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And those, these are those who are the targets of the book of Acts and so on. But then there's us specifically that are included in here in verses 30 through 31. And prosperity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. And they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Now this is specifically us that he is speaking of. As Jesus was on the cross, just before he died, his thoughts were of those who would come to a saving knowledge. He's understanding the magnitude of these gates that are being opened to all of humanity, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. So it kind of puts this next verse in a little bit different perspective. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Well, those were specifically in context to Israel as they were in Babylonian captivity. But even you can apply that to Christ upon the cross. Even as he's on the cross, he's suffering and he's literally suffering because remember the cross is the son receiving punishment for sin. So he's literally suffering upon the cross. But his thoughts towards us is for a future and a hope. It's for peace and not evil. And you see just the magnitude of the love that God has for here. Even while he's suffering, his thoughts are for the future generation that will come into a right relationship with him. And then the last part of verse 31, that he has done this. It is finished. It's at this point that the Lord breathes his last and gives up his spirit. And it's there that all of heaven rejoices because the price has now been paid. 
That's why Good Friday is such a good day. It was the day that the Lord paid the price that I or you could not pay. It's the day that the gates of heaven had been opened up. Now, think of that. That that speaks of everybody who had died in Christ when we're told he went down to preach the gospel for those who were... Um, those who are in chains, he spoke of victory, but he also led captivity captive. Those who've been taken captive, he brought back. All of those who died in faith in him, now they're able to enter into the throne room of God. And it's an amazing occurrence. It's that which there's nothing else in history that could have occurred that could have accomplished that. It's finished. God's plan for salvation has been accomplished. No other punishment is necessary. No other sacrifice can suffice and no other blood needs to be spilled. The sacrificial death of Jesus is complete, it's total, and it's thorough. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, truly they will be saved. And just as ridiculous, this farmer hacking up that perfectly good gate for making his point, purgatory or any other work of man that is attached to salvation does the same thing of this perfect work of God. What great works of art in the world can you possibly add to? Not a one. If you put me before the Mona Lisa, I'll just detract from it. I will not be able to add to it. And so because of this, Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so, Bible The Bible just gives us the depth, the crucifixion of Christ so that we would look and we would see and remember this time of the season, what has has been accomplished and the love that was directed, that God did this for me, God did this for you. And this would be motivation, motivational to us as well, not just during this weekend, but in so many others to come and that we would rejoice in the great love that has been lavished upon us so that we would be called children of God. Father, <clears throat> we just thank you, Lord, and I lift up the great work that you want to do. And even as Christ prayed from the cross, praying for those who would come into salvation, I pray for those whom you have a divine appointment with even this weekend, not just at our church, but at the church, wherever it is that the church gathers, wherever it is that the church celebrates your death, your victory, and your resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that we would come to the understanding, that we would embrace this understanding of this great work with which you had done for us personally. And, Father, because of that, I pray that we would be motivated because, as Christ was talking about, it's those who preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to either the Jews or the Gentiles, whoever it may be, that, Lord, we do your work and we see the joy that entered into your heart. Father, I pray that we would bring joy to you and i pray father through that that you would bring strength to us so father we just thank you and praise you for this opportunity that you have given us tonight just to rejoice in your works and your word we thank you and praise you lord in jesus name amen will you all stand please